Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing. Member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week. Markets shrug off higher consumer prices. The economy is in the process of rebounding. Will the Federal Reserve have its own digital currency? The financial stories that shape our world. Many people think the yields are just going to keep marching up. We have more spending coming out of Congress. One of the big questions I think on investors' minds, inflation. Through the eyes of the most influential voices. Larry Summers, the former Treasury Secretary. Brian Moynihan of Bank of America. Wells Fargo CEO, Charlie Sharp. Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston. From Bloomberg Radio. Politics from U.S. elections, prose from COP26, and a poetry haiku from the Federal Reserve. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. Just about everyone got their licks in this week, from U.S. voters telling the Democratic Party to think again, as described graphically by Democratic strategist Howard Wolfson. I mean, it was a bloodbath. To European Commission President von der Leyen telling the world it needs to pick up the pace on climate action. We all must speed up our race to net zero. We're running out of time. But in the end, it all came down once again to the Federal Reserve and its chair, Jay Powell, who went out of his way to calm the markets, announcing finally that the Fed would begin to taper its bond buying program, but that it is in no rush to raise rates. Our decision today to begin our tapering our asset purchases didn't, does not imply any direct signal regarding our interest rate policy. We continue to articulate a different and more stringent test for the economic conditions that would need to be met before raising the federal funds rate. When we heard from Chair Powell on Wednesday, he said our monetary policy ultimately depends on the labor market. And then on Friday, we got surprisingly strong numbers for jobs growth, adding over 530,000 in October and revising up the numbers for September to over 300,000. The markets took the week overall as pointing to risk. The S&P was up 2%, the fifth week in a row. That's the longest streak in over a year. And the Nasdaq rose even more, up 3%. But all that equity action didn't hurt the demand for bonds, as the yield on the 10-year fell six basis points to end under 1.45%. To give us an investor's perspective on all this, we welcome now Afsani Beshla. She's founder and CEO of Rock Creek. So, Afsani, great to have you back with us, always is. So give us a sense, it sounds like right now we can have our cake and eat it, too. It's great to be uh, with you today, David. There 
it was really interesting because what Chairman Powell said was exactly what the markets expected, right? And he said what we had been waiting for a long time with the 15 um, billion tapering every month. At the same time, he made it quite clear that other market expectation that you know when tapering is done in July, we would uh, probably start having the rate increases may or may not be the case. Um, so I think in terms of eating our cake, absolutely, we can continue having growth. We can, uh, you know, as you said, we had the uh, yield curve uh, steepen. We had the markets, you know, up um, six times in a row. That was uh, quite exceptional. But I think what a lot of people did not maybe pay a lot of attention to is what happened um, over in the UK with the Bank of England, which has, I think, some relevance to what Chairman Powell may be having in mind as we get into next year. And that was the markets expected interest rates to be increased in the UK, and that did not happen uh, this week. And they were a lot of people lost their shirt. And I think what Chairman Powell is saying is he does see the one condition of um, of inflation where he expected it to be, which is more than 2%, and it is. And there are lots of, lots of uh, conversations whether it's going to be higher or not uh, by a lot because of the supply chain problems. But more importantly, he and I think in the past, Janet Yellen are two Fed chairmen who have really, really talked about not just the numbers that we see, like the ones you mentioned, the 530,000, which, by the way, had 200,000 women in it. And that's very important because women are starting to go back as schools are opening. But a lot of people are still sitting on the sidelines. And he talks about maximizing employment. So he's looking at it much more from a maximizing employment, looking at lots of different dots. And also, uh, we should really watch what they're saying much more carefully just like I think we were surprised by UK. If may, if you let me, I just was, um, you know, uh, reminded of a Stan Fisher quote uh, because he gave this great lecture at MIT. And Stan, uh, who was a, a formal Fed vice chair, um, once said that central bankers are, uh, it's a dangerous place to be a central banker because they can print money. But he also said central banking is something like a, Pointless painting. You have all those dots of data <laughs> and you're trying to figure out what on earth is the picture. Yeah, and, and I think that is the problem. And I'm sorry, when you talk about this people on the sidelines, it points to participation numbers, which are stubbornly not going up particularly well. But if you're an investor, it's not just the yield, it's the real yield. You have to take into account inflation. And one of the questions I have is uh, we had Chair Powell masterfully keep the markets nice and calm. Is that really what he wants to do? Is he going to fight inflation by doing that? Because actually financial conditions actually loosened rather than tightened when he said he would taper. Uh, they did. And I think he will be much more careful. But again, this focus on what he has said very clearly, employment, I think, is sort of uh, really, really up there for him. And so he will be watching inflation. At the same time, but if we do think that uh, with the supply chain problems that are there, we will have less of a problem. One, because growth rates will be lower next year in the U.S., in the rest of the world, in the in Europe uh, and in China. Um, you may not have as big a problem. And so your real yield, which is what you're talking about, may not may may actually do better because, you know, inflation uh, may start going the other way around. So I think that's sort of the way he's implying his thinking is, and that's the way we actually think at Rock Creek too.
That's Afsani Beshlas, Rock Creek founder and CEO. Coming up, former Bank of England Governor Mark Carney on enlisting the banks to fight climate change. That's next. This is Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing, member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high-yield account. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. COP26 meetings were dominated, of course, by heads of state this week. But a lot of the big news came out of the financial sector and a huge effort of the financial industry to really support the goals of zero emissions. Those efforts were led by Mark Carney, the former governor of the Bank of England. He's now vice chair of Brookfield Asset Management and, as important, a special envoy of the United Nations. So we welcome now Mark Carney to Wall Street Week. Thank you so much for being with us today. Um, start with exactly how the world changed because of those huge initiatives. I understand you have 450 institutions, something like $130 trillion in assets represented. But if I work at one of those institutions, an asset management firm or a bank, how are the decisions I make today different from the ones I made yesterday? Well, first off, David, thank you for having me on. I, you know, I love the show. Uh, you're an absolute institution. And I'm going to take it, if you will, from a Wall Street perspective, because in full credit, to the biggest firms on Wall Street, uh, largest banks, uh, global banks, largest asset managers, others who are part of this initiative. There's an acronym that comes with everything. It's called GFANS, but that they bring a lot of that $130 trillion. And what it's going to mean for people working there, and a number of them are already doing this, but it's going to go across the organization, is they're going to look, uh, when they're making a loan or they're making an investment, they're buying a bond, even you know, trading a derivative, uh, they're going to start taking into account uh, the underlying credit, the underlying company. Where is it on the transition towards net zero? Because after all, what the objective of 195 countries is to get to net zero, um, net zero uh, greenhouse gas emissions. And so this is going to become uh, you know, a competitive advantage for companies that are moving faster towards that, companies that are part of a solution. And it's going to be a challenge for those companies who have it. So this lens on climate and climate competitiveness, if you will, uh, is going to be applied across uh, virtually all assets. And that's going to be part of the skill set of the individuals who are making those portfolio decisions. 
So you know this industry so terribly well. Uh, distinguish, if you would, defense from offense. And this is what I mean by that. It's one thing no. to say, if I'm working for a bank or an asset management firm, I'm going to really shy away from some of the fossil fuel companies. I understand that. I'll call that defense moment. But does this encourage companies to go on the offense, for example, to invest in green steel? Uh, look, David, absolutely. Um, and that's the big shift here, I think, that um, we've been aware of the risks around climate and you know, the, the most obvious ones are, you know, when New York gets hit by an uh, extreme weather event and there's big property losses or supply chains are disrupted by, uh, by a, a, another event on the other side of the world. And, you know, we have those effects and we have to manage those. Um, but there are huge, huge opportunities in being part of the solution. And so the offense here is very, very broad. Uh, it, of course, it includes, and you know, in my professional life, I, I do a lot of this uh, at Brookfield, uh, one of the largest renewable uh, producers in the world. It includes building out wind, solar, hydro, uh, eventually hydrogen and other uh, technologies that produce electricity uh, with no emissions and are part of very much uh, central to our future. Uh, but almost as interesting and really more valuable is going to companies that have high emissions today. You rightly mentioned the steel industry or the auto industry uh, or the cement industry, the building industry, commercial real estate, others, and, and helping them get emissions down. Now, it, it takes a lot of capital in order to do that, but it's going to pay off in terms of a, a huge amount of value. And so on the range of uh, solutions and investment opportunities here, you have technologies that are just going to take existing activities of, you know, whether it's HVAC, uh, heating and uh, ventilation, cooling uh, in buildings, or um, a grid optimization for electricity grid, and just get the emissions down uh, from existing plant. Next to that is putting in place new technologies, new investment that itself gets emissions much more dramatically down. And then farther out the risk spectrum uh, are those technologies that will be uh, very much part of our and I, I referenced uh, green hydrogen a moment ago, and, and, and that would be a classic example. The, the, the more extreme breakthrough technologies, I put it in the venture capital camp, are technologies around, for example, direct air capture, uh, sustainable aviation fuels. So the whole range of the investment spectrum uh, is available. And look, your question is very on point. This is much, much more about offense. It's much, much more about getting capital to solution. And Candidly, that's why we need something like $130 trillion uh, to be focused on addressing this issue. If I can make one other point, David, to put this in context, look, there's a lot of estimates of how much it's going to cost to move the world to where it needs to get to. But they center around somewhere in that $100 trillion range 30 years. That's a big, big number. It's a big increase in investment. Um, but it's doable. And that's one of the messages that's coming out of Glasgow. I mean, it's it, in many respects, it's a watershed. Uh, Wall Street and, uh, and the global financial sector has stood up and said, look, uh, we'll put capital behind these solutions. And one of the reasons, again, why they're doing it, uh, they want to be part of the solutions, they want to help their clients, but they see a lot of offensive opportunities and only more to come in the future. So Mark, as you say, this is a, a program for global Wall Street and for investors in particular. So speak to those investors. As you describe this, what we're calling offense, investing in things like green yeah. steel and the like, uh, do, you, do investors have to get used to lower returns as a practical matter? 
No, I don't think so. And certainly not on a risk adjusted basis. One of the things now for a moment, David, I'm going to speak about defense, unfortunately, uh, which is one thing investors uh, increasingly will need to do is think about terminal value. Think about uh, where uh, certain assets um, are going to lose value and potentially lose value quite rapidly because they're not decarbonizing fast enough or they're just not suited for a low and zero carbon uh, economy. Uh, you referenced uh, part of the energy sector, fossil fuels. Uh, you know, there's elements of that which will not be there um, or certainly can't be there if we're going to get to where we need to go. So uh, investors need to look at that. On the offensive side, um, you know, just a range of uh, a range of opportunities, as I say, um, looking into um, I'll, I'll put it this way in terms of an overall framework first, which and this is something that will become increasingly common to think about, uh, which is what's a company's emissions today, not just their own emissions from their operations, but also from their suppliers and and from those people who use the product. So, I mean, the most complex example really is the auto industry, huge range of suppliers from around the world. And of course, uh, when we drive around in our cars, we're, we're burning fossil fuels and there's emissions. Um, so what are their emissions today across that whole value chain and where are they going tomorrow? That's former Bank of England Governor Mark Carney. Coming up, Lazard CEO Ken Jacobs describes how his business is changing because of ESG. That's next. This is Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. Zero carbon emissions. It was all the talk this week at the COP26 meetings in Glasgow with European Commission President von der Leyen urging faster action. We all must speed up our race to net zero. We're running out of time. And President Biden saying the United States will lead the way. The United States is not only back at the table, but hopefully leading by the power of our example. My administration is working overtime to show that our climate commitment is action, not words. But if we're going to have any hope of making real progress on emissions, it will take more than governments. It will take a massive effort of the private sector. Bank of America's Brian Moynihan says banks like his are feeling the pressure. There's a lot of pressure on banks because our clients are demanding this. Uh, you know, our investors are demanding this. The politicians, the world's demanding this. And Luke Ellis of the Mann Group says that with more guidance, the private sector, and especially hedge funds like his, can help get us where we need to go. And this is really anybody that's investing in liquid stocks. So you're an owner of a company, you know, and that gives you the chance to engage with management and to make sure that they have a serious plan, not just a sort of fluffy hand-waving plan. What matters is people with actual plans, actual movement, actual things going on. And, you know, hedge funds do a good job, can do a good job of engaging with companies. Lazard Freire is on the front lines in arranging acquisitions and mergers, also in managing nearly $300 billion in assets. So when it comes to figuring out how the lofty goals of COP26 may translate into the real world, there's nobody better than Lazard Freire. And we're joined now by the chairman and CEO of Lazard Freire. He is Mr. Ken Jacobs. Welcome to Wall Street Week. Thank Good you. to have you here. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. So we've heard these lofty goals. Everybody is signing up for them. But what does it mean in the real world? As you're doing deals, as you're managing assets, is it changing what you do? Uh, on the asset management side of the business, absolutely. 
Um, that, that's changing rapidly. On the advisory side of the business, which is arranging mergers and acquisitions, uh, that's on the come, so to speak. We're seeing the beginning of it, but it's, but it's not quite there yet. Let me speak to the asset management side to begin with. Uh, one has to step back and realize this has been in play now for several years. The first thing that happened is the core demographic that drives activity in the economy started spending their values. That was, I don't know, couple of years ago, three, four or five years ago in the United States, longer in Europe. Over the last couple of years, everybody, it has shifted now. So that same demographic is starting to invest their values. And that's playing through in the asset owners. And it's really having a big impact on the asset management business. So when you talk about investing in assets, uh, is it defense or offense? And by that, I mean this. It's one thing to say, I don't want to invest, for example, in a fossil fuels company. Okay, I get that. But what about affirmatively investing in a green steel company? Um, I think in the beginning, it's going to be defensive because at this moment in time, there's very little that that kind of ties uh, green performance, whether you are uh, your emissions policy, your social policies. There's very little that actually ties that to performance in the stock market or cost of capital. That's at its very early stages. But scoring companies is there. So I'd say at this moment in time, we're probably doing, I would say most of asset management is, is investing defensively around, around ESG, and I think that's going to shift over time. Uh, we, had, we heard from a former Vice President Al Gore this week saying that we have something of a, I think he called it a climate subprime crisis coming, because there's trillions of dollars in assets in coal and in fossil, other fossil fuels uh, that may not be worth actually what we think they're worth because they'll never get used. Is there a looming problem with that? In the long run, yes. In the short run, in the medium term, we're going to have many ups and downs. You know, uh, a year, a year and a half ago, when, when oil was trading at a negative value, who would have predicted close to $100 oil price a year, year and a half away? So I think what we're going to see is a lot of um, what I would almost describe as uh, uncertainty and, um, and, 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 um, and outlier kinds of experiences over the next several years. I think in the long run, he's probably right as we make that transition to uh, uh, the energy transition to renewables and to uh, more uh, green types of energy, that will happen. But in the med short and medium term, we could have a lot of ups and downs. So what do you do as an asset manager in that circumstance? Because we have a short-term supply problem, for example, natural gas in Europe. And we've seen the prices spike up. And we've seen energy company stock actually go up. So in the short run, you actually might be able to make some money because the money market may have overly discounted the value of those stocks. Yeah, well, I don't think it's as black and white today as that asset managers can't invest in oil and gas and energy stocks. I think we're slowly, maybe even more rapidly than some would like, moving in a direction where it becomes less attractive to do that. At this point, are there enough really attractive alternatives on the green front? Now I'm talking about the offensive part, yes. uh, whether it's solar or whether it's new technology. I've, I've talked to some people who manage a fair amount of money who say, you know, even though I want to invest a lot of money, there aren't that many good deals to be done. Well, I think that's going to, again, I think it's going to evolve. As, as you start to build in the incentives, both from the standpoint of where capital goes, and I mean, if, if as an example, uh, there is a real incentive for people to invest in, in green projects, then the cost of capital for those projects goes down mm -hmm. and those projects become more attractive to invest in. And I think we're going to see more and more of that as time goes on. Also, the investment that's taking place in technology, uh, everything from storage to uh, wind, solar that have taken place over the last couple of decades have made an enormous difference in creating opportunities in, in this area. And I think that's just going to continue. That's Lazard CEO Ken Jacobs. Coming up, we wrap up the week as we always do with Larry Summers of Harvard. That's next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. 
Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing. Member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. This is Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. And we turn once again this week to our very special contributor. He's Larry Summers of Harvard to take us through the week. First, let's start at the end of the week, Larry. We got the jobs numbers out for the United States. Better than expected. Pretty robust. Not just for last month, but also revising for the prior month. What do you make of these jobs numbers? Look, it, it fits the what I've thought for a while now, David. We've got a very, very strong economy on the demand side and not a very strong economy on the supply side. And that's risking and overheating. You saw a lot of job creation. You didn't see an increase in uh, labor force participation. You saw a rapid average hourly earnings figure. But if you adjusted for the fact that most of the people coming back were in leisure and hospitality where wages are relatively low, It was an even stronger uh, wage uh, figure. I think we're still not running policies that are consistent with uh, the reality of the economy. The reality of the economy is that we've got an interest rate far below the neutral interest rate, and we've got a tight labor market. And that's a prescription for rising inflation, not a prescription for uh, falling uh, inflation. So I continue to be very concerned about the outlook uh, going out a year or so as the economy starts hitting supply constraints and hitting them hard, given all the pressure on demand. So, so Laurie, hook that up, if you can, with what we heard from the Federal Reserve this week, and particularly from the chair, Jay Powell. He certainly seemed to say in the news conference that really when it comes to the question of Tapering he's begun, but particularly rate hikes, that's going to be determined by what happens with the labor force. Is he right about that? And is it possible for him actually to be too gentle in the messages he's sending to the markets? Because certainly the financial conditions did not tighten at all. Look, what the Fed controls is financial conditions. If you look at financial conditions as measured by real interest rates, if you look at financial conditions as measured by asset prices, they are looser than they were Before Jay spoke on Wednesday, they are looser than they were a month or two uh, ago. We've got rising inflation and we're not tightening uh, financial uh, conditions. That's why I fear that we are on a uh, risky course. Now, the argument that thoughtful people like my uh, friend, former 
classmate uh, Paul Krugman uh, make is that there's some risk aversion principle that we've got to do this because it would be so catastrophic to um, run a recession and inflation is a manageable problem. I agree that we've got to guard against risks, but here's my view. My view is if we let inflation accelerate, there's almost no proven ability of the central bank to engineer a soft landing. And so in order to squeeze out an extra bit of hoped for labor market tightness, I think we're taking a real risk that we're setting up for a very serious uh, problem. You know, if you look ahead of you and you see that there might be all the traffic stopped, you start breaking your car as early as you can, even if it means that it's going to slow you down in the event that there is no uh, traffic jam. And that's, I think, the right way to think about the central bank's problem right now. Larry, another big development through the course of the week was with respect to the infrastructure, bipartisan infrastructure bill, as well as the so-called Build Back Better plan. It's not quite there yet. It's not finalized, but we have a pretty good sense of where it's going. What do you make of what we're seeing, both on the what we're spending side and how we're paying for it side? Look, I hope we get this done. I hope both bills pass the bipartisan infrastructure bill and some version of uh, the so-called reconciliation uh, bill. There's sure a lot of effort going into building better, build back, build back uh, better, and I hope it works out. I also hope people are gonna keep a very, very close eye on this since uh, at the very last stage, that's when abusive provisions or misprovisions are sometimes uh, put in. I'm glad to see that the provisions on SALT deductions look like uh, they're being uh, modified uh, somewhat. It would have been a real tragedy, David, I think, uh, if uh, the provisions had ended up being written in a way where people in the top tenth of a percent of the income distribution got a substantial tax cut. I think we're moving towards uh, fixing uh, that. But look, uh, these are investments that our country uh, should uh, be making. It's also not too early to say that it's not the amount of money you spend and the nobility of the cause you spend it on, but it's how well you spend the money that matters. You know, is money for childcare and pre-K going to help kids? Or is it going to help provide help the providers of childcare services? Are infrastructure projects going to produce a better infrastructure, or are they just going to help the businesses that provide uh, infrastructure services? It's going to be really important, both in terms of the effectiveness of the investments and in terms of the American people's confidence in government that this money be spent well, as well as being spent on a significant scale. 
Larry, one last one. Last week, you and I talked about the COP26 talks, which were upcoming in Glasgow. We've now had them. You expressed some concern, even doubt, last week that they would be able to do enough to really get us on the course we need to go. Did they? I'm still, I'm still worried, uh, David. You know, I, I learned uh, as a fundraiser that when people wanted to say a really polite no, what they would do is talk about a much longer horizon and a much more ambitious goal. And I felt like there was a fair amount of that going on in uh, Glasgow. And I'd like to judge things a little more by what people are actually gonna get done and committed in the next five years, rather than the aspirations they're gonna set for decades from now. It's such an important lesson. Just briefly here at the end, uh, what do we need to do to have concrete things to be done in the near future? I think how rapidly we, uh, mo we're moving to, uh, in a very supportive way, replace uh, coal-fired power plants with renewables is going to be an absolutely critical test. I think globally, we are still spending trillions of dollars on fossil fuel subsidies. And the single most important thing I would be looking at is not the credits that we give to renewables, not the penalties we impose on fossil fuels, but just the pace at which we reduce those fossil fuel subsidies. Such an important way to look at it. Thank you very much. That's Larry Summers. He's our very special contributor right here on Wall Street Week. Finally, one more thought. Hotel California moves to Shanghai. None of us anticipated how long this COVID thing would last. Certainly, President Trump didn't when he talked about getting rid of it in April of 2020. And by the way, the virus. They're working hard. Looks like by April, you know, in theory, when it gets a little warmer, it miraculously goes away. I hope that's true. But coming up on two years later, it feels sometimes like this will never end. We've now lost over 750,000 people here in the United States and around 5 million around the world while the economic disruption just continues right to the present day, as Fed Chair Jay Powell admitted again just this week. A lot of what we're seeing in the last 90 days is because of Delta. We were on a path to a very different place. Delta put us on a different path. And inflation? Well, Kristalina Georgieva of the IMF says it's really just a vaccination problem. Preferably, we should see tempering inflation and how can we do that? Well, focus on reducing this divergence. Vaccinate the world, yeah. vaccinate the world, so we can see production everywhere stepping up. Nothing could compare with the loss of life and the economic dislocation. But let's be honest, there's also the sheer annoyance of still having to deal with it all. The wearing the masks that leads airline passengers to become violent. And as Ed Bastian of Delta tells us, get banned from traveling permanently. We've had a few incidents, not a lot on Delta, uh, but anyone that, that doesn't want to wear a mask and they're on board, you know, we give them the option to either wear the mask or they're taken off the flight and put on our no-fly list. And we've had about 2,000 people uh, that we've put on the no-fly list, the permanent no-fly list over the course of the pandemic. But as frustrated as you might be, you can take heart. You probably don't have it as bad as uh, 34,000 people who went to visit the Disney theme park in Shanghai. 
They all went with their small children for a magical day, but one person tested positive for COVID. They closed the park, wouldn't let anyone leave until every single one of the 34,000 people had been tested. It took until about midnight. You can imagine what that would have been like with your five or six year old child. And to add insult to injury, in the end, no one else tested positive. I guess better safe than sorry, but like the Hotel California, you can check in, but you can never leave. At least not until you've had yet another COVID test. That does it for this episode of Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. This is Bloomberg. See you next week. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.